thanks for checking out the KZMC podcast. My name is April Zare, and I'm an associate pastor at KZMC. This podcast is a recording of sermon teachings from our 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship gatherings. We release a new episode every Tuesday. If you're looking to check out our Sunday mornings, you can find our live stream over on our YouTube channel on Kingsfield Zurich Mennonite Church. We'd also love to have you join us in person. You can find out all the details about our Sunday mornings on our website, kzmc.ca. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Good morning. I'd like to thank Rini for having the courage to publicly read from a biblical genealogy. I guess correctly that when I asked Rini to do this, that she was not one to back away from a challenge. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We ask that you open our hearts and our eyes and ears to hear what your word has to say to us. Because in your... uh, Amen. I had a scripture verse that just dropped out of my head. (laughs) Okay. Uh, One of the benefits of being between full-time pastors is that our congregation gets exposed to a large variety of guest speakers that come to this church pulpit. In the past few months since Ryan left, we've had different types of sermons, different speaking styles, and a nice variety of messages. I think Ed Wilms' message last week was great. I think uh, Pastor Craig has been consistently giving great sermons in his time as being interim pastor here. But unfortunately for you all today, we have a guy here who, has, who thought it was a good idea last week to bring Romaine Lettuce and a teddy bear to church. <laughs> and as far as messages go, at the very bottom of preferred subjects for people to listen to, I'm pretty sure that sermons, uh, right at the bottom of sermons, would be just below tithing and giving, would be sermons on genealogies. And today's sermon title is, and it was, is, is uh, genealogies are, are not exciting, or are they? As Rini read to us, genealogies consist of a list of names of people who died thousands of years ago. So maybe the, using the word exciting in a title was a tad overly optimistic. How can I make a list of names sound in any way exciting? So in this context of pessimism on geologies, why am I speaking, you're probably asking, on that, this subject today? Well, to answer that question, I never intended to. I had a goal earlier this year to read through the entire New Testament from start to finish. At the beginning of the New Testament is Matthew, and chapter 1 and verse 1 of Matthew states, and I quote, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now, when I did that, as soon as I read those words, I knew I had a decision to make. Do I keep reading through, or should I just skip that part? Don't judge me at the suggestion of skipping over genealogy, because I have three words for you all. Return of investment. If I spend 15 minutes reading a genealogy, or 15 minutes of reading Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, where would I likely find more spiritual meat and nuggets of truth? That said, if I was to go the other way and read through the entirely, That could be a lot of work. If I were to really do it well, I would leave no stone unturned, looking up and researching every unknown name, referencing the listed names in the other places in the Bible, 
perhaps using concordance or Bible dictionary and carefully comparing it to other genealogies in the Bible, like I said, that'd be a lot of work. So I took a third option. I skimmed through it. Now, technically, I'm still reading it through, but choosing to focus on just the familiar names and then bypassing the names they didn't know. As I skimmed through the first chapter of Matthew, I saw that there were four female names mentioned in the first six verses. My curiosity was piqued because I know that most historical records and genealogies focus on the male side of the family, even though it's obvious it takes a male and a female to make a genealogy. So I asked myself, why have I not noticed these female names before? And why are, there, why are these four names mentioned and not other women? In the past, when I've read the Bible, uh, when something piques my interest, such as a repeated phrase or something that pops out of something that I, that I thought was very familiar, it turned out that God was trying to draw my attention towards something in that passage. It doesn't always happen, and there's no formula to it. But when it does happen, it's led to an insight to, a, to what I think is on God's heart for me that time. And I wondered, is this one of those times? It's not lettuce. Okay. The next day, instead of continuing on and reading in the New Testament and moving on to Matthew chapter 2, I tried to recall what I remembered in the stories of Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. I remembered that Ruth and Tamar were both widows, and they were young widows without children. Interesting, I thought, because usually being a childless widow was a reason not to be included into a genealogy. Obviously, they did not remain childless and widows, and those stories, uh, had, and those stories were of continuing, of, of continuing interest on why. So instead of moving forward in the New Testament reading, I found myself going backwards and rereading the passages of where each of those women's stories were in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. As I read those stories, I was emotionally moved. Those women lived through difficult and somewhat unusual, strange circumstances. And I had questions, lots of questions, including questions on the morals and ethics ethics of some of the men who, who were in their lives. I also wondered, how did the customs and cultures of the people who were living in that time contribute to the strangeness of what was being contained in those stories? And this is the focus of today's message and the reason why I chose to speak on a genealogy. Instead of reading out each women's stories, I'd like to briefly summarize them and offer you um, some of those questions that that arose and also maybe give some insight to the relevant historical context. Let's start with Ruth. I think most people are familiar with Ruth's story. Amalek, Naomi, and and their two sons moved to a foreign land of Moab, and their two sons married local girls, one being Ruth. Tragically, all three men died, leaving all three, all three of them widows. Grieving and destitute, Naomi intended to return to Israel and encouraged her daughter-in-laws to return back to their own families of origin in hopes of provision and finding new husbands and having families. Naomi, Naomi had nothing left to offer them. Ruth, demonstrating loyalty and courage, refused to leave Naomi, and together they traveled back to Israel to provide food for them both Ruth gleaned harvest uh, grain fields, picking up individual pieces of grain pieces off the ground, piece by piece. The field she gleaned was from Amalek's distant relative, Boaz. Boaz noticed Ruth 
impressed with her work ethic and high character and hearing of Naomi's plight, offered protection and extra grain and accepted Naomi and Ruth into the family clan. Ruth, uh, uh, Boaz married Ruth and Ruth had a son and Ruth is specifically mentioned by name in the first chapter of Matthew in the genealogy of Christ Jesus, the Messiah. There's probably never ever been a good time to be a widow, then or now. Being a widow means overwhelming grief, suddenly being alone, being alienated and isolated, no longer having a partner to share burdens and chores, and having a reduced income and jeopardize financial security. But in that time of Naomi and Ruth, of course, there is no social safety net, which we are very familiar with today, no social assistance, no insurance payouts to draw upon. And being in a foreign country, the family had no family clans to surround them. They were all alone, and they were on their own. Until this previous century, we know that a family clan was the primary means of support and protection for most people on this planet. Family clan protection was the primary system of justice in human history before organized systems of justice and police forces were implemented, as which we're all familiar with today. The family clan of protection functioned like this. If somebody does something wrong to a member of our clan, we will not rest until our clan does something of equally wrong to a member of your clan. Failure to respond to this was a sign of weakness and an open invitation to take advantage of your clan. As barbaric as that sounds, uh, it allowed members of your clan to travel in relative safety in the surrounding territories. Ruth, uh, Naomi and Ruth did not have a family protection, a clan with them. They were alone. So when Ruth was uh, gleaning grain behind the harvest crew in the field, she was in extreme danger. It was known to all of them there that she was a widow and a foreigner. There was no husband and no family clan to protect her. Boaz saw this extreme vulnerability in Ruth's situations and commanded his workers not to touch Ruth. And when Boaz married Ruth, both Ruth and Naomi legally fell under Boaz's protection and provision of the family clan. Like I said, I had questions. First, why are the men in this story, knowing the vulnerability of Ruth being a widow and a foreigner, had to be told not to sexually molest her? If I can be blunt. <laughs> Were they prone to this behavior? The context of the scripture says yes. And second, what would it have been like for Ruth and Naomi to live as widows in that culture, to live daily in the state of extreme vulnerability and fear? This extreme vulnerability and fear, which, which motivated uh, Naomi to move back to Israel and for Ruth in the fields in, in Israel, is the underlying context and foundation of the story in which God works upon. Tamar. Tamar. <clears throat> was a daughter of, of, of daughter-in-law of Judah, and Judah was one of the 12 sons of Israel, uh, later, of Jacob, later called Israel. Tamar's husband died, and then the custom, she married his brother, and he died also. Jacob refused to provide the remaining son to Tamar, so instead, Judah sent Tamar back to live with her original family, living as a widow. Tamar responded by covertly dressing up as a prostitute, putting herself in the path of her traveling father-in-law, Judah, and Judah unknowingly hired the services of his daughter-in-law, impregnated her, had twin sons, 
And Tamar is specifically mentioned by name in the first chapter of Matthew, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Tamar's story should be strange to us today for a lot of reasons. It'd be strange because it's weird today because we, we don't have a requirement for a widow to marry their spouse's sibling. Why would they do that? Well, there'd be many reasons, but a major reason would be for economic provision of the clan. And in this story so far, Judah had no grandchildren, and that was a problem for him and the clan. So he provided the next son. Up until about four or five generations ago, a family obligation for everybody on this planet was to offer primary care to your grandparents and your parents in their old age, and then in turn, your children and your grandchildren cared for you and yours. And the offspring would continue to keep going on back then. They'd keep planting crops, keep raising animals, guaranteeing a fresh a food supply and economic provision for you in your old age, as well for all the other older relatives in the clan. Not producing children would be an economic disaster. When the second brother passed, Judah did not fulfill his obligation in providing the third brother to Tamar. The reluctance is understandable with Judah's previous two sons perishing. Judah broke the custom and abandoned Tamar by sending her back to original family and required Tamar to wear widow's clothes, condemning Tamar to a single childless life, a life that would deny her of economic security and care from her potential children and grandchildren. We can be quick to judge Tamar's desperate action of dressing up as a prostitute, but let's look at the larger context. Tamar's first husband was so evil, the scripture says God killed him. There was no specific reason why. Tamar's second husband was so evil, God killed him. We do know why, because the scripture says he was, uh, using her, he was willing to use her sexually, but he chose to prevent pregnancy, and the purpose of the marriage was to produce offspring. In trying to look at this from Tamara's perspective, being married to two evil men who died, I wonder if Tamar actually grieved for them. Even though she was childless, was she relieved that these evil men had passed? Was it so bad that she might have, did she even rejoice? And what about her father-in-law? He literally abandoned Tamar, and his actions guaranteed that she would remain unmarried and remain childless. childless. She, he did not treat Tamar right at all. And one more question about Judah's character. How did Tamara know that if she dressed up as a prostitute, that her father-in-law would purchase her services? Was Tamar an excellent guesser? Or is it more likely that her father-in-law was known to habitually purchase prostitutes? I have more questions. What is exactly wrong with the male members of this clan? And why is a world, major world religion, Judaism, named after this guy? Eventually, Judah admitted that he was the father of Tamar's pregnancy, and he acknowledged that he did not treat Tamar fairly. This small concession failed to make right the larger context of the story. And the context and the foundation of the story is this, that Tamar was used, she was abused, she was abandoned, and she was neglected. Rahab. Rahab lived in the fortress city of Jericho, and despite living in a major fortress, a well-constructed fortress, the people of Jericho were tremendously fearful of the Israeli army that were coming their way, hearing of their unusual exploits and their victories in battle. 
The army of Israel covertly sent out two spies to check out Jericho's defenses, and they stayed in Rahab's house. Rahab misdirected the search efforts of the hidden spies in exchange for the, pro- exchange for the promise of protection from the Israeli army when they came. Rahab and her immediate family were indeed saved. She married an Israeli. She had a son. And Rahab is specifically mentioned by name in the first chapter of Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. With Rahab, I have two observations. First, it's an awkward one. Rahab was a prostitute. She was referred to being a prostitute numerous times in the book of Judah and also in the New Testament as well. And Joshua himself referred to Rahab, Rahab as the prostitute instead of actually saying her actual name in, in chapter 6. There's no getting around it, and there's no way to minimize that. What are we supposed to do with that information? Do we ignore it? Whatever Rahab's decisions were made in her past about regarding prostitution, whether it was considered shameful or immoral, what we do know is from this text is that Rahab made a choice to side with God's people and to follow and serve their God. She chose to start her life over with a new life, a new way, and God was apparently okay with it because, as we know, she was included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She was part of God's son. <laughs> Perhaps in Rahab's story, we have seen that God places a higher priority on where we are going than where we have been. That should be good news to all. I know it's, do you guys agree? <laughs> it's good news to me. <laughs> Shifting gears, there's another observation, and you have to fall, bear with me on this one, in regards to the context. When the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, the Israelis took a sword to every living thing. It was God's command. And scripture says, men, women, old and young. I'm going to graphically spell this out, and Tanya kind of cringed when I kind of told her I was going to do this. Pregnant women, babies, toddlers, grandpas and grandmas, everybody was put to death with a sword. We would call this today a genocide. All this must have happened in front of Rahab with the unforgettable sights and sounds of mass executions of people who she's known all her life, members of her community, distant relatives, friends, people she associated with. How could Rahab not have been traumatized by this event? How could she not have been scarred for life for what she saw and heard? Yes, she chose to follow the true and living God, but how, how can what she saw and heard be undone and how could it ever be forgotten by her? So with this double foundation of Rahab's story, won't we have a person finding a new life and starting over, but also someone who had an unforgettable trauma in her life. Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to a soldier named Uriah, and Uriah was away and off to war. King David saw her bathing, slept with her, impregnated her, and then deceptively covered up his tracks, trying to deceive Uriah into thinking that he was the father of the child. When that plan failed, David had Uriah killed. David married Bathsheba. They had a son. Confronted by the prophet Nathan, David's sins were publicly revealed. David repented, and and part of that was what Diane spoke of this morning. Um, But but David still faced consequences, tremendous consequences, and one of those consequences was that the Lord put that newborn son to death. 
David and Bathsheba had another son, Solomon, and Bathsheba is referred to, but not specifically named, in the first chapter of Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As noted, Bathsheba is not referred to directly by name, but instead she's referred to as Uriah's wife. Even though David was legally married to Bathsheba at the conception of Solomon, it's still listed, he's still listed as Uriah's wife. I think Matthew is, is, is uh, referring to Bathsheba only by her old husband's name, and I think this loudly points to the injustice that David perpetrated on both Uriah and Bathsheba for all of us to see. Bathsheba's had her life drastically changed beyond her control on somebody else's decision when David used her sexually and got her pregnant. David attempted to use her again as a lure to deceive her husband into sleeping with her to make him think that he was the father of David's child to cover up his transgressions. When that failed, David had her husband murdered by Amorite's sword, as the Bible says. Did Bathsheba deeply mourn the loss of her husband? By all accounts in Scripture, he was an honorable man of excellent character, unlike Tamar's husband's. And what choice did Bathsheba have in marrying her husband's murderer, David? Was she even a willing participant? And did her choice even matter to anybody around her? And to punish David for his, his sins, God killed Bathsheba's child, too. How devastating was that for Bathsheba? She was suffering collateral damage for the, for the consequences of David's punishment, of David's sins. I recently heard a story of a person who is now in retirement age discussing the details about the loss of their baby who died shortly after his birth decades ago. This person shared the tremendous difficulty of putting away the unused items that had been prepared for in the nursery. They described that for years, the thought of attending a baby shower of somebody else brought back memories too painful to bear. They talked about seeing kids the same age as their child in the different stages of life growing up, having birthday parties, having graduations, get, having marriages, and having those kids have kids. They made it clear that they celebrated the life events of those other kids, and they were not in any way resentful to them. But they also expressed that seeing those life events unfold in other kids were painful, parallel reminders of those same losses of the unlived life stages of their own child. Can we assume that Bathsheba never, ever got over the death of her baby child? And can we assume that she never got over the death of her honorable husband, Uriah? The foundation of this story is one of being used and then being forced to suffer the consequences of somebody else's actions Tremendous and painful consequences at that. As I weighed the knowledge and the context of each of these incredible stories of these women, I came back to the original question, why? Why did Matthew mention these four women by name in the genealogy of Jesus? And did it have something to do with the nature of their stories? The answer to that question could not be possibly found in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, because all it is is just a list of names and nothing more. Did the answer lie in, in the greater context of looking through the entire book of Matthew and in Matthew himself. 
So shifting gears, what do we know about Matthew? He was one of the 12 original disciples. He was called by Jesus. And as a group, this group traveled around Israel. Matthew heard Jesus' teaching, saw his many miracles. Matthew was present at the Last Supper. He saw Jesus get arrested, saw his death, saw his incredible resurrection, and later saw his ascension into heaven. Matthew was in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came, and that was the memory verse this morning. Uh, uh, Matthew was there in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit came and baptized them, and then filled them with fire, so they had the, the power to fill the Great Commission. Church history states that Matthew uh, did a lifelong mission work uh, in the area what we now call Iraq, which is part of Asia. And later on, he traveled to Africa, Ethiopia, where he was martyred for his faith. We know Matthew's profession was a tax collector. In our society, somebody who collects taxes would be working for Canada Revenue, and they'd probably be considered a mid-level government uh, bureaucrat. No big deal. But in New Testament times, a tax collector was uh, employed by the occupying uh, mighty Roman Empire. After centuries of occupying and administrating and conquering lands, the Romans figured out how to maximize, maximize their primary goal of any occupation of extracting wealth and resources from their conquered territories. Upon victory, instead of just taking the plunder and having a one-time and short-term payoff, the Romans learned that instead, keeping everybody alive and then taxing them heavily, the Romans could receive a steady stream of ongoing income from their conquered peoples. And by experience, the Romans learned that the most efficient way to collect taxes was to employ local people for them purposes. People who knew the local customs, people who knew the business practices firsthand, and more importantly, they knew the unique ways their own people can hide their wealth from the, from the Romans. Protected by the feared Roman legion soldiers, tax collectors could freely intimidate, threaten, demand, take, and steal from their fellow citizens as they purposely collected more money than the Romans required and kept the excess for themselves and they became wealthy in the process. Naturally, the people who collaborated and with the occupying Romans were considered traitors. You've heard the phrase before in New Testament frequently, I'm sure. The quote is, the two words together, sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors established themselves with and being with synonymous to sinners, the lowest of the low, the outcast, the worst. Tax collectors were fully rejected by everybody in society, and they were aware of it, and they weren't made to forget that either. But one, Jesus came to Matthew, the tax collector, and told Matthew, I meant to say one day, Jesus came to Matthew, the tax collector, and told Matthew, he simply said, come, follow me. And Matthew got up and left everything behind and followed Jesus. Matthew walked away from his employment and everything it represented. Everything it represented. As a follower and disciple of Jesus, um, G Jesus went out with his disciples, sent out his disciples. He sent them out two by two all around Israel. And I want to invite everybody to look at the contrast of change in Matthew's life. Instead of forcibly taking from and economically devastating the people of Israel, Matthew is now freely bringing the word of God to the people of Israel. And by the power of God, Matthew and the other disciples 
were healing people of diseases and injuries and delivering them from all the things Scripture says. By following Jesus, Matthew went from, from taking to giving, from intimidating to loving, from stealing to healing. This is a remarkable transformation. And Matthew was all in. He was a changed man. Matthew spent his whole life telling people about Jesus, the Messiah, his Savior, his Lord, first to the people of Israel and then to people around the world. And, and you know what? He's even continuing to do that today in his gospel. Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit to sit down, write out the whole story of Jesus, of his life, his death, and his, and his resurrection, telling people what he saw with his own eyes, what he heard with his own ears, and we experienced firsthand as he wrote out the gospel of Matthew. I don't think Matthew had any idea that the words he wrote would be printed out five billion times and would be among the largest uh, distributed book in human history. All Matthew knew at the time, I'm sure, is that by following Jesus, the Messiah, that his life, life was changed from darkness to light. And this, mass, this message had to, was for everybody. It's for anybody and for everybody. Perhaps in talking to people around the world about Jesus, people would ask some questions, the same questions over and over again. Perhaps the same questions uh, Matthew asked of himself as in the lowest of the low when he was a tax collector and, and stealing the people blind around him and being hated and it was just a dark life he had. And perhaps it's similar to the questions that we ask ourselves today, it, people around us, maybe even people in this room or, or even me. And that question would be, can this Jesus that you're talking about, can he save me? How can he know about what I've done? Can he, can, how can he know what other people have done to me? Can he understand the depths of the worst of what life has brought to me? Perhaps people then ask questions similar to, ask more questions to Matthew like this. Can Jesus understand what it's like to be completely alone? To live in the state of extreme vulnerability and to be fearful? Can Jesus possibly know this? Can Jesus understand what it's like to be used, abused, abandoned, and neglected? Does Jesus even want to know about the things I did in my past life that are so shameful, I don't even want to talk about it. I, I, don't, I don't want to risk saying to anybody, to God or to, or to man, in fear of rejection and condemnation. And is it even possible with that life? Can I even start over again? Can I have something new? Perhaps Matthew heard this question. What's it like to be traumatized? Does Jesus know what it's like to be traumatized? I've seen things and I've heard things that I'll never, ever forget, and it's been devastating. Can this ever be fixed? Am I broken beyond repair? Perhaps somebody said to Matthew, I've been used by self selfish people. I've been forced to share in their, their horrible consequences, and there were terrible and painful consequences. It's been, it's been unbearable, and it's been unending for years, decades later. Can this Jesus even begin to understand what I am going through? Yes, Matthew said. I have an answer. I have an answer for all of you today and for tomorrow and for always as he sat down and began to write about 
the story of Jesus the Messiah. At the very beginning of his writing, he sat down and started writing up the names in geology of Jesus Christ the Messiah, and he wrote down names, and they include the names of Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, and Uriah's wife. Yes, Jesus, uh, Matthew wrote, I have good news for you all. And that's exactly what gospel means. the gospel means, is good news. I have good news for you all. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, who will buy you back, the Rebuilder, indeed knows about all those things that you've asked about, and he fully understands all these things. He knows the worst that what can happen he knows what the worst, what, what humanity can experience. And all these things that you're asking about, Jesus clearly knows because these things are in Jesus' DNA. All these things, these broken things, are contained in the building, bo- building blocks of Jesus' genealogy, and they are part of who he is. Look, Matthew says, as I write these words down, look, it's all here. It's all in Jesus' DNA. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, for Matthew's words, Lord, who point to Jesus and who he is to us, Lord God, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Rebuilder. Lord, we, 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 we're all broken. We all need saving. We all need redeeming. We all need rebuilding. Lord, we thank you for pointing out that who your son is, that his building blocks, Lord God, that his, his DNA is not foreign to us, that he knows from who he is, from where he comes from, being fully God and fully human, Lord God, that he knows, he understands where we are, and that we can come to him heavy laden and burdened, and we can get rest, we can be rebuilt, we can be renewed. We thank you for this promise, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.